Well, this morning, the, the question I want us to think about together and answer together from God's Word is, is this. What hope do we have to offer to broken people? We've been thinking about what the Bible says about what it means to be human. There's so much confusion in our culture about what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a person. And so we've looked at uh, what the Bible says about the fact that we've been created by God. We've been made in His image. He made us male and female. He made us with bodies and souls. And all of that is good. And we've also looked at the fact that we are fallen. We are sinful. We have been affected by Adam and Eve's sin, by our own sin. Right? All of us are broken. And we all, all people live with that sense of there's something good about the way God has made us and the way God has made the world. And there's something broken about the way the world is and about the way that we are right now. But not everybody knows the reason for all of that. Not everybody believes what the Bible says about the fact that we've been made by God in His image, but that we've also been broken by sin. And so people try to deal with that brokenness in all kinds of ways that don't actually help. Remember what Adam and Eve did, right? When they first sinned and they first became aware of their own guilt and shame, What did they do? They sewed fig leaves together, right? And tried to hide their shame, hide their nakedness. That, of course, didn't help them, didn't work. But people are still trying to do the same kinds of things today. They're still trying to come up with their own remedies for the brokenness and the shame even that they are feeling and experiencing. So what I want you to think about this morning is... What we have to offer, what we have to say, what good news we have to give to someone who is feeling that brokenness, the brokenness in their own lives, the brokenness in the world, and yet doesn't know the real remedy for it. What can we tell them? So think for a moment about someone, imagine someone, or maybe you, maybe you know someone Who would fit this description? Imagine someone who has bought into the false remedies, the fig leaves that our culture is offering to those who feel broken, feel that something is not right in the world and maybe something is not right even in themselves. Imagine someone who, out of a deep sense of brokenness, has sought refuge in an attempt at crafting a new identity for themselves. Maybe imagine somebody who, as a result of trauma that they have experienced, has attempted to numb the pain in their lives through immorality or through the abuse of drugs or alcohol. Think about someone, perhaps, who has tried to feel alive, feel like they have purpose, feel like their life has meaning through anger and hatred and opposition. Maybe you don't have to imagine someone. Maybe you know someone that fits one of those descriptions. Maybe you were that someone. Maybe you're wondering right now if you still are that someone. Whatever the case, what can we offer to that person? What hope can we give them? What good news can we share with them? 
that my goal this morning is to explore more fully the remedy that God has provided for fallen humanity. And my hope is that as we do that, we will grow in our understanding not only of who we are and what God has done for us to restore us and what should define us, but also will help us be better equipped to minister to others, to share that good news with others, to seek to impart that hope that only God can give to those who have sought it in places that don't ultimately give a real and lasting hope. So we're going to be looking at lots of passages of Scripture this morning. You're not going to have to turn to them all and keep up with them all. But I, do, I want to start with one particular verse. This is going to be sort of our, our anchor this morning as we look at lots of different places. And that verse is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Because one of the things that people are longing for desiring when they are feeling this sense of, again, whether it's brokenness, purposelessness, confusion, all kinds of other things. Part of what they are looking for is a new identity, a new start, some change in their life that will help them feel like something about their life makes sense, that it's right, because so much feels Wrong, And so part of the good news right, that God gives us in his word and gives us through Christ is this. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if someone says, like, I, I just I feel like I need a new identity, I need a new start, I need a new persona, I need a new self or something, we should not say to them, No, you don't need that. You just need to be who you are. No, what we can say to them is, you know, there's lots of ways to try to do that, to try to craft a new identity, a new persona, a new life. But the God who made us can really and truly make us new. He can give you a new identity. He can make you a new person, a new creation, the Bible says. So how does he do that? How can we get that? Well, we have to start with what it took for God to save us. What God did, the plan he executed, the actions he took... To save us. It's not just that, it's not like God is just up there in heaven, distant from us, and if we can just, you know, pray loud enough and long enough that maybe He'll hear us and snap our fingers and give us a fresh start. That's not how it works. God is not distant, God is not disinterested. God made us, God loves us, and because of that, God sent His own Son into the world to save us. And in order to save us, he had to become like us. And we see this all over the Bible. For example, in the Gospel of John, right from the beginning, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus, the Son, right? Because then later it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in order to save us, He didn't stay in heaven where He was. He left 
heaven, so to speak. He came down. He took on flesh and blood. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He became a man. He, he was still God, but he became like us so that he could save us. But why did he have to do that? Why go through all that? Well, in the book of Hebrews, it says that he had to take on flesh and blood so that he could die, so that he could deliver us. Not only from death, but even from the fear of death. So Hebrews 2 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, the people he's going to save, since we share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And so he took on flesh and blood. He became man. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And he's saying as long as you're afraid of death, you're afraid of the consequences of death, you're afraid of what's going to happen to you after you die, as long as you're afraid of death, you are not free. You are enslaved. And so Jesus came to conquer death, to conquer Satan who had the power of death, so that we could be set free knowing that we would have life beyond death, life beyond the grave, because of Christ, because of what Jesus has done for us. So he goes on to say, surely it's not angels that he helps. Right? Jesus did not come to save angels. If he did, he would have had to be like an angel somehow. But that's not what he did. Instead, he says he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to become like us. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. So that's a lot of words. Here's what that means. In order to save us, somebody had to die. God can't die. So God became man so that he could die. He became like us so that he could save us. He became like us so that he could represent us. He became like us so that he could take our place on the cross. So that his death could be an offering for our sin so that we might be redeemed and set free. See, he had to become like us to save us. And he did become like us in every way except he never sinned. And because he never sinned, he could offer himself as the perfect sacrifice, a sinless sacrifice, to redeem us from our sin. One of the early teachers of the church put it like this. He says, it was our sorry case that caused the word to come down. Our transgression that called out his love for us. So that he made haste to help us and to appear among us. It is we who were the cause of his taking human form. And for our salvation, that in his great love, he was both born and manifested in a human body. In other words, the first thing we need to understand about our salvation is it's not something God does from a distance. It's something he came near to do for us. He moved in. He became like us. He walked among us so that he could save us. And then when he went to the cross, it was not just that he was dying, not just that he was experiencing death, because 
lots of people die, right? Everybody dies. And, and a lot of people were crucified. It's not just that he was on a cross that made the difference. What was Jesus doing when he died on the cross? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And why would he do that? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Again, here's what he's saying. We were under the curse of the law. None of us can keep the law perfectly. None of us can obey God perfectly. And if you don't obey God, you get the curse. right? You get the consequences. You get the punishment, the judgment that our sins deserve. So what Jesus did when he died on the cross is though he had never sinned, done nothing to deserve God's curse, but only deserved God's blessing, he became a curse for us. He took our curse upon himself so that we would not have to be under that curse, but instead would receive the blessing, would receive the Spirit, would receive salvation. Another way Paul puts it is this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, for our sake, so he did this for us, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So who is it that knows no sin? That's Jesus, right? He made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin. He takes our sin upon himself. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, when you trust Christ, when you turn to Christ, when you become a Christian, not only are all of your sins paid for, covered, washed away, but you also become clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You are covered right, in Jesus' perfect righteousness. He took your place and put you in his place, as it were, right? You get what belongs to him. We don't, we don't deserve God's blessing. We, we're not righteous in ourselves, but all those things God gives us because of what Jesus did for us. So here's one way we can sum up the good news that, that the Bible is, is teaching us, that we need to hear and remember and believe and understand and that we need to communicate clearly to others. The good news is not you need to change. That's what the, that's what the law says. That's not what the gospel says, right? We need to change, but that's not, that's not good news because we can't do that. We we can't sew together enough fig leaves to make ourselves presentable to God. We can't. So you need to change is not good news. The good news is God can change you. God can make you new. God can make you a new creation. Give you a fresh start. God can do that, though we can't. So what is this new creation, this new self, this new, uh, new reality, new life that God can give to us. How does that work? Because lots of people want that, right? Lots of people want a fresh start, a new life, a new identity, but getting it 
is not always easy, right? If you just think about like an illustration from normal life, right? If you said like, I, I want to, as far as like my health goes, like I, I want to turn over a new leaf. I want to be a new person. I, I'm going to exercise. I'm going to eat well. I'm going to do all the things that I'm supposed to do because I, I, I just, I want a fresh start in that part of my life. Lots of people want that, right? That's great. What keeps most of us from actually doing that? To get there, it's not just that you want to be new, but who you were and what you were doing before, that has to die. And that's really hard and really painful. But that's also how new spiritual life comes about. Notice when Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The next thing he says is, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's not just that the new has come. The old also has to die. The old also has to pass away. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 6. He's talking about, he's responding to people who are saying, hey, you know what? Grace is wonderful. Forgiveness is wonderful. And so what if, you know, we just sin as much as we want because then we get more grace, right? Isn't that how it works? Paul says, absolutely not. You don't understand. This is how it works. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when we baptize somebody, right, we don't just like walk in the water and say, look, here they are, they're new. You got to go down in the water first to represent the fact that your old self, your old life, who you were before you met Christ, that has died, that has passed away, that is no longer who you are. That's hard, right? But then on the other side of that, we raise you up to represent the fact that now you have new life. You're a new creation. You're in Christ now. So to get to that new creation, you've got to be ready for your old self to die. Right? That's why sometimes before people become Christians, they, they have to hit rock bottom. Not everybody, right? but sometimes people just have to hit rock bottom where they say, I'm so sick of this. I'm, I'm sick of myself. I'm sick of my life. I'm sick of this sin. I've, I'm sick of how all this is going. I, I've got to have somebody rescue me. I've got to have somebody save me. Sometimes it takes just that level of desperation, right, before we're willing to cry out to God. Just like sometimes it takes a really serious diagnosis from the doctor before you're like, okay, for real, I'm going to exercise and I'm going to eat. Sometimes you really have to get a scary diagnosis before you're willing to make those changes. Right? Not everybody needs that, but some of us do. Right? And in the same way, some have to hit rock bottom before they're ready to call out to God and ask for a new life. But not everybody does. But you do have to be ready to die for your old self to be put to death. Because even after you become a new creation, even after you become a Christian, you turn from your sin, you trust in Christ. The Bible says if you call on the name of the Lord, He'll save you. Right? But that, then that's just the beginning. 
Right? He gives you a new beginning. You're a new creation. You're adopted into His family. You're loved. You're forgiven. All those good things. But now you've got to live that out. And the good news is you can live that out because now you're a new person with new desires, new power, right? because the Spirit of God has come to dwell in you. And so the things that you tried to change in your life before and just never could get it to work or to stick, it's going to be different now. Because now you're a new person. And now God is with you. And, and Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 4. Uh, he's talking about how we learned Christ, what it means to be a Christian. And he says that we have to put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So in other words, here's what that means about what the Christian life really feels like. Because sometimes people will, uh, well-meaning, they'll, they'll oversell it. right? So if you become a Christian, all your problems are going to go away. If you become a Christian, all those temptations are just going to fade away into the background. Well, if only it were so easy, right? That's not usually how it works. Now, it for some people, sometimes, you'll hear people say, I used to have this temptation in my life I just couldn't get away from when I became a Christian. It just went away. Praise God. That's awesome. Sometimes it happens that way. Not normally. Normally what happens is you just have to day after day remind yourself of who you are, what God has done for you, and choose to walk in the way that He has laid out for you, right? you got to put off the old self, because it's still there. Those temptations are still there. Those old habits and patterns, they don't just disappear overnight. But now you've got the resources, right? Now you've got the ability, the desire to live differently, because now you are a new person. So you've got to put on that new self. You didn't create that. God created it for you. God made you new, but you've got to decide to continue to walk in it. Remember that you're new and live like you're new. Now that newness, that new identity, that new self, that new creation, if that's really what happens when someone becomes a Christian, if that's really what happens when we turn to the Lord, then we need to think about what that means, not only for our own lives, Right? Because one of the things that Satan loves to do is remind you of who you were and try to convince you that's still who you are. Right? You hear that voice in your head sometimes? Right? You're still that person. You're still like that. Right? It's not true. If you're in Christ, that's not you. It's who you were, but it's not who you are. We need to think through not only what that means for us, but also what that means for how we think about others, how we think about the church. Because the Bible is clear that anyone can become a Christian, no matter who you were, no matter who you are right now. What matters is who you are now. So if you become a Christian, who you were is not what defines you, it's who you are now that matters. So here's what Paul says to the church in Corinth, right? So this, he's not writing to a group of pagans. 
He's writing to a church. He's writing to a group of Christians in 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. And here's what he says. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But part of what he's doing there, we're going to pause there for a second. Part of what he's doing there is he's saying, look, you know that there are certain ways of living that you cannot live and expect to inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot live like that and expect everything to be fine. That's not how it works. He says that those who live those kinds of unrighteous lives will not inherit the kingdom of God. But here's what he says next. And this is so powerful. I do not want you to miss this. He says to this church, and such were some of you. Some of you guys, he says, were wrapped up in all kinds of sexual immorality. Some of you guys were greedy. Some of you guys were idol worshipers. Some of you were wrapped up in just the worst kinds of wickedness. But, he says, that's who you were. That's not who you are. So then he says, after he says, such were some of you, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were unclean, now you're clean. You were disqualified, now you're qualified. You were an outsider, now you're a part of the family. That's not who you are anymore, that's who you were. Now who you are is someone in Christ, indwelt by the Spirit of God. That's why I say the Bible is clear that anyone can become a Christian no matter who you were. What matters is who you are. Which means there's nobody who we can look at and say, you'd never be welcome in the body of Christ. You'd never be welcome. You've done too many horrible, terrible things, too many sinful things, too many unclean things. You're, you're permanently disqualified. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. We, if we, who are Christians, are not defined by who we were, but by who we are now in Christ, that's how we need to look on anyone and everyone who has turned to Christ and become a new creation. We also can't think of them as who they were. We need to look at them as who they are. We should be ready to receive as brothers and sisters in Christ anyone who has turned from their sin to Christ, no matter what they did or who they were before they encountered Christ. That's not being soft on sin. That's being strong on forgiveness and grace and the truth of the gospel. But to do that well, we also need to understand that there is a difference between how we respond to those who profess to be Christians and join the body of Christ and those who make no such claim. And this is important because at times we get this completely backward. There are people who uh, will say, we should not talk about any of the sins that are going on inside of churches. Don't talk about that. Don't report on that. You know, just, you're making us look bad. Let's leave all that in the dark. Well, the Bible says we have to deal 
with serious sin that's happening in the church. But there are many who want to just pretend like that's not there or not talk about it or not deal with it. On the other hand, there are those who want to focus on and talk about and be angry about and make a big deal about all the sinful things that are going on outside the church in the world. And those are problematic and those sins are real. But those are not our chief concern. Right? And, and here's why I say that. Paul says early, so this is earlier in 1 Corinthians in chapter 5, right in the same group of people. And this group of people has a, a, a situation of sexual immorality going on in their church that Paul says even pagans think that's gross. Right? Even pagans don't do that kind of stuff. But they were proud of themselves that they were welcoming this guy. And so Paul says, you completely misunderstood what you're supposed to be doing. And he says, I wrote to you in my letter, a previous letter he'd written, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So he says, when I said don't, don't be fellowshipping with sexually immoral people, I wasn't talking about non-Christians. Otherwise, how would you ever have any non-Christian friends? How would you interact with anybody in the world? You'd have to go live in a monastery somewhere, right? It's not even possible. He says, instead, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, or excuse me, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. What sometimes we are inclined to do is the exact opposite of what Paul's saying we're supposed to do. We want to turn a blind eye to the sin that's going on in the church, and we want to throw stones at all the sin going on outside the church. Paul says, the sin that's going on outside the church, that's not my business. That's not my domain. I mean, he'll talk about it. He'll call it sin. He'll tell people to repent. But he's, he, there's no church discipline for people who aren't even Christians. Right? It's just not how, he says, God's going to deal with that. Right? God will judge them. What we need to be focused on is making sure our own house is in order. Right? That the church is acting like the church. That the church is taking sin seriously inside the church. We can't do anything about the sin outside the church other than preach the gospel and invite people to repent. I mean, you know, we can do a little bit, but we can't do a whole lot until they come to know Christ. But we can do something about what's going on inside our own doors. Because if we don't, Right? Paul says, again, there's this situation going on in the church that even pagans wouldn't tolerate. What happens when the church tolerates stuff that even non-Christians know is wicked and messed up? Then they don't want anything to do with us. Why would I come listen to what you have to say? You can't even take care of stuff that we know how to take care of. We've got to be not perfect, but holy. Not sinless, but Christ-like. Willing to repent. Willing to call brothers and sisters to turn from their sin when they stray and keep straying 
from what God has called us to do. We, we don't have any authority over what's going on out in the world. But we do have a responsibility to encourage one another to keep following Christ and to call each other out when it's clear that we're not. Now, if we are new creations, right? God has gone through all of this to save us, to make us new. What is it now that defines us? If it's not who we were that defines us, but who we are that defines us, then who are we? What are we? Who is this new self? What is this new creation? Well, there are lots of things that people like to define themselves by and define others by. But there's really only one thing that defines who we are now. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3. He says here, talking about in the church, right? Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, city and slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In Galatians 3, he says the same thing. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All the categories that people use to divide each other and and separate each other and, and say, you're that and I'm this, we're us and you are them and you're not one of us. Paul says all those things, they don't matter. Not that they don't matter at all, but they don't matter very much. They don't matter in the church, uh, at least not in terms of who we are. But is, if, if you're a man, is it important you're a man? Sure. But is it the most important thing about you? No. If you're a woman, is it important that you're a woman? Yes. You're not going to stop being a woman because you became a Christian. But is being a woman the most important thing about you? No. If you're a Greek, you're probably pretty proud of that. The Jews probably think you ought to be ashamed of that. But guess what? If you're a Greek or a Jew who's become a Christian, whether you're a Greek or a Jew doesn't matter anymore. Not ultimately. What matters is, are you in Christ? That's the most important thing about you. Not who you are, not what you've done, not where you've been, but whose are you now? That's what matters. Because we believe that God is all-knowing, all-wise, all-good, we know that His way is always better. His plan for saving and healing and restoring broken people is better than all the band-aids and fig leaves we try to cover all of our brokenness up with and patch ourselves up with. His solution, His remedy is not something He encourages us to try or charges us to do. It's something He did Himself for us, becoming one of us in order to save us And set us free. He doesn't merely tell us, as so many people think, so many people think what the what Christianity is about is us telling you what you can't do and what you need to do better. That comes later, right? That's part of living as a Christian. Things you shouldn't do, right? Things you should do differently. But the fundamental message, the starting point is what God did for you. Because He loves you. Because He cares for you. Because He knows you couldn't save yourself. Because He wanted to save you. And once He does that, once you turn to Him, once you trust in Him, 
all those other things, all those other identities you tried to craft for yourself, all those other things you divided yourself from other people or other people divided themselves from you about, all those things fade into the background and one central fact becomes clear. You are new because you are in Christ. And being in Christ is the one thing about you that really matters and that can never change. And it makes all the difference.